Today's scripture is from Psalm chapter 121. Psalm chapter 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Your Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God. All right, thank you, Randy. It's great to see everyone today. It is a great joy to be able to study the Word of God together. Uh, Before we do anything, let's just pray and ask for His blessing on this time. Uh, Father, we're so grateful that we have the incredible privilege of being able to study Your Word as a church week after week. And we know that this is not something that we should take lightly. Uh, We know that it is a unique thing that we are able to come together. We are able to study Your Word. We are able to do so without freedom of persecution or someone bursting through the doors and arresting us today. And so, Father, may we take that privilege and may we, uh, may we rejoice in it. And may we delight in the fact that we can study your word today. As we turn to a psalm here, Psalm 21, that maybe is familiar for some, maybe for some less familiar, we're praying that we will be comforted by what we read here, that we would be encouraged by the words we see in Psalm 121, and ultimately that we would recognize that we can lift up our eyes to you where there's help. And so, Father, may we have that attitude today that just pervades our time together as a church, that we are people who know that we need help and we are willing to look to you. God, you are a gracious God, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of being able to gather together as a church. And we pray that today, your son Jesus Christ would be exalted, that your word would go forth, and that we would leave here loving you more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, for some reason, acknowledging that you need help and then being willing to ask other people for help is not always an easy thing. In my growing up years, one of the most stressful things that we did as a family is we went on vacation, which seems kind of counterintuitive because it seems like vacation should always be refreshing and relaxing, but that's not usually the way it worked out for our family. And usually the reason it was stressful is because of the fact that we would get lost almost every single vacation. Now, this was back in the 1980s, long before GPS and long before all the great technological wonders that we have now. And so my parents, when we went to a new city, they were stuck using maps and intuition to find their way around. And as it turns out, maps and intuition are not always that helpful when you're in a new city. And so invariably what would happen is that we would get lost or we would take a wrong turn and the tension level in our van would start to rise. You could feel the nerves being frayed. Sometimes the relational difficulty was subtle. Other times it was painfully obvious. And in the back of the van, all you could think to yourself was, I hope somehow they find the correct path. The thing I never understood, though, when we were growing up is that no matter how lost we were, it seems that seldom, if ever, would we ever stop to ask for directions. Now, it didn't matter if it would take us 30 minutes to find the place or an hour. We, and it didn't matter if it would only have taken two minutes to stop at the grocery store or to stop at the gas station or the fast food restaurant. For whatever reason, it seems that my parents were under the impression that it was better to have a 30-minute tension-filled ride trying to find our way around than just stopping and asking for directions. 
Now, I don't say that to be critical of my parents because the fact is I'm guessing that maybe some of you have been there before. In fact, uh, without GPS, I have no doubt that there might have been times where we would have been there. But as a kid, I never understood it. I never got it. I, I didn't understand why we wouldn't just stop and ask for directions. But I have to say, as I've gotten older, although there's parts to that that I don't relate to just because of the GPS, and, and I say this in all sincerity, praise God for GPSs. They've rad- radically changed our lives. I know that. But I do understand the difficulty as an adult of stopping and asking for directions. It's hard. It seems like it would be the easiest thing in the world, would it not, to ask someone for help. And yet so often we're unwilling to actually do so. Unwilling to actually do so. Uh, there, there are times, certainly not just relating to driving now, but other times where I easily, by a simple phone call, could have figured something out in two minutes, but instead I try to figure, or take an hour to figure it out myself. And sometimes that's okay, right? When I'm trying to fix something at home or put something together, it may take me an hour to put it together, and maybe that's good because I'm learning in the process. But, but easily I could have called my father-in-law, and in two minutes we could have had it fixed. It's probably not that big a deal in that case. But there are other times where our prideful unwillingness to ask for help is much more detrimental. For example, and, and maybe relating back to our vacations growing up, when we're unwilling to ask for help for directions and it leads to sinful arguments in our marriage, that's probably not a good thing. When I'm trying to fix something and my blood pressure is rising and my self-control is going out the window, it probably would be helpful for me just to stop, pick up the phone, and call my father-in-law. Right? There are times where our unwillingness to ask for help is detrimental to our relationships And it's detrimental to our own health and our emotional well-being. There are other times where it's even more serious, though. And that's not to say that relational difficulty and your own health being compromised aren't serious, because they are. But there are times where our unwillingness to ask for help can be fatal to our souls. When we are unwilling to ask God for help, we are setting ourselves up for a cataclysmic failure. And so my goal today is simply to show you this. You need help. You need help. You do. And I want to show you that there's a place where you can run to to find that help. And that is the good news of Psalm 121. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read the passage. And if you wouldn't mind just standing again out of reverence for God's word. (coughs) Excuse me. Psalm 121. This is the word of God. Verse 1. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. All right, you may be seated. It's the word of God. Now, first and foremost, what I want to show you here from Psalm 121 is that we need help. We do. Look at verse 1. Look at what the psalmist says here. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, Psalm 121 is a psalm of ascent, which means that this is a psalm that the people would often sing as they were on their way up to Jerusalem for a feast. And so it's conceivable here when the psalmist is talking about needing help, he's talking about needing help on the journey. It's a difficult and dangerous journey to make your way to Jerusalem. So it's conceivable that that's what he's talking about here. But as you read the psalm, I think it's obvious he's not just talking about that journey. He's talking more broadly about life in general. And he starts with this question. He says, where does my help come from? 
And in doing that, I think he's implying something that he needs help. When he asks the question, where does my help come from? He's admitting that he needs assistance. Not just on this journey to Jerusalem for the temple feast, but also in life. He needs help. And he's willing to admit that by asking this question. Now, as I said in the introduction, that is easier said than done. It's one thing to theoretically admit that you need help. In fact, I would guess that every person in this room would admit that you need help in some things. There's probably not one person who would say, I never have any need of assistance in any area of life. And if you are saying that, then you clearly do need assistance, right? You need some humility. You need someone to tell you, no, that's not true. Because all of us are in need of assistance. But it's easier to admit that in theory than it is in reality. To actually admit that you need help is difficult. So let me just admit it for you. I'm just going to get it on the table for all of you in this room. You need help. And I can't point to every one of you because that would take too long. But I'm pointing to every one of you. You need help. If you are here today, you need help. And so do I. And this is true in the everyday areas of life. In everyday things that we do on a common basis, we need help. There's not one person in this room who has everything figured out. I feel confident in saying that. If you are married, there is not one person here who has the perfect marriage. If you have kids, there is not one person here today who is the perfect spouse. If you are single, there's not one person here who's learned to perfectly navigate the life of singleness. There's not one person here who is the perfect son or daughter. There's not one person here who's the perfect employee. There's not one person here who's the perfect church member. And there's certainly not one person here who's the perfect elder or the perfect preaching pastor. That is for sure. Whether you are willing to admit it or not, you need help. If you're married, marriage is difficult. You need help. If you're parenting, parenting is difficult. You need help. If you're wanting to be a good son or daughter, if you're wanting to navigate singleness, if you're wanting to work in a fallen world, all of those things are difficult. You're going to need help. Living in the body of Christ is hard. You're going to need help. If you're going to shepherd the body of Christ, which is what elders are called to, that's hard also. Listen, every person in this room, without exception, needs help in almost every area of life. And the sooner you admit that, the better off you'll be. The better off you'll be. And that's not just true in an everyday sense. That is true in an ultimate sense as well. Your greatest problem is not that you are an imperfect spouse. Your greatest problem is not that you are an imperfect parent or that you're an imperfect employee. Your greatest problem is that you have sinned and you have rebelled against God. And because of that, the Bible says you are his enemies. Every person in this room, apart from Christ, is an enemy of God. Our unwillingness to obey his commands, our sinful nature means that we have rebelled against him. And there is nothing we can do to make ourselves right with him. And when I say nothing, what I mean is nothing. There's nothing you can do. The Bible is clear that your sin has caused this separation between you and God, and there is nothing you can do. You need help. You need help. We all do. Not just in the everyday areas of life, but also in the ultimate sense. And again, the sooner you can admit that, the better off you'll be. Listen, if I have some disease, and and just maybe because it's the most common, let's just say cancer. If I have cancer, and I refuse to admit that I have cancer, and I refuse to go to the doctor and get help, that doesn't change the fact that I have cancer. It just means that I'm not getting the help that I need. The first step to recovery is admitting that you need that help. And in this case, going to the doctor and starting to get treatment. The same is true in the church. The first step is admitting you need help. You need help. 
Every person does. This is what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is implying when he says, where does my help come from? That he is one who needs help. But that is true for every person in this room. And the sooner we can admit that, the better off we'll be. I'm not sure how this happened, but somehow in the church, and I've mentioned this before, we've come to this conclusion that we kind of need to hide the fact that we need help. We, we come here and we pretend like we have it all together. We pretend like we're, we're all living these perfect lives, that we have this perfect marriage and we have the perfect kids and we have this perfect job and everything in our life is just going wonderfully. You know how ludicrous that is? Listen, we are people who believe the Bible. We've read Genesis 3. Right? We know that sin distorted us, that we have fallen natures. We know that sin distorted this world. Not only that, we've read 1 John. We know that even as Christians, we will still continue to struggle with sin. We know that we will still need help. Yes, it's true that through Christ we have victory over death and over Satan. Praise be to God. But it's also true that we will continue to struggle with the old self as long as we live. And so whether you are not a Christian or whether you are a Christian... Every person in this room, again, without exception, needs help. What doesn't make sense to me, I've mentioned this before, is that oftentimes when we come to church, we pretend like that's not true. That's crazy. That'd be like checking into the hospital with cancer, going to the oncology wing, and then pretending like you don't have anything wrong with you. Listen, everyone knows why you're there. It's because you're sick. There's no sense pretending like you're not sick. And so everyone here knows that you are sick. We all know that you are messed up. And even if I've never met you before, I feel entirely confident saying you are messed up because I've read the Bible. And I know how humanity works and I know how our sinful nature distorts. And so everyone here is messed up and yet for some reason we pretend like there's nothing wrong with us. We check into the hospital because we're sick and then we're like, oh, we're fine. That doesn't make any sense. Listen, if you come here today, I'm assuming that you're a person who needs help. In fact, I'll give you a simple test, right? It's a one-question test to, to determine whether you need help. Here it is. Are you human? If the answer is no, that's weird, right? If the answer is yes, then the answer is yes, you need help. If you are a human, then you need help. So if that's the case, let's stop the pretense. Let's stop with the acting. Let's stop putting on this false sense of we've got it all together. And let's just admit we are messed up, all right? Let's just admit it. Let's just from the start say, yeah, we, we are not right. We need help. And that's okay. The psalmist is willing to admit that, and we should be willing to admit that too. The psalmist here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is willing to admit that. And we too should admit we need help. Now, the good news of Psalm 121 is that there's help available. All right, so I know that that first part's kind of depressing. Like I've just told all of you that you're all messed up and that you're all really you know, in a bad state, right? And I know that's not the thing you want to hear, but I want you to know there is good news. And in fact, Psalm 121 says there's a place where we can find help. Verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says this, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our help comes from God. Now the difficulty, again, I think is that in theory... We are much quicker to admit that than we are in reality. Like, I know that you've probably been to church before, or, or at least most of you have probably been to church before, and so you've probably heard before that we should be dependent upon God. You're probably recognizing the truthfulness in that statement, and yet I'm not sure how much of us actually believe that help comes from God. Think of it this way. When you lose a job, what is your first response? If you're thinking, I need to find a job, 
What is it you start thinking of? Is your first thought to immediately begin to think, I know that help comes from God, and so the most important thing I can do is pray? Or is your response is, I need to get my resume looking better, or I need to make sure that I utilize all my connections, or I need to find a good headhunter? What is your first response? Do you ultimately believe that help comes from God? If your marriage gets in a difficult spot, is your first response to think, you know what, we need to spend more time praying because we need the help that comes from God? Or is your response to think, well, we just need to go to a good marriage counselor or we need to just change our circumstances or my spouse just needs to change? When parenting goes awry, are you thinking to yourself, well, let's just read a good book or let's just ask other parents for advice or let's just do more discipline or less discipline or, or whatever the case may be? Or is your first response to think we need to cry out to God because help comes from him? When you're struggling with sin, is your first reaction to think the most important thing I can do is cry out to him because help comes from God? Or is it to think, well, I just need to go to church more often or I need to be more disciplined in my spiritual walk or I need more accountability? Now listen clearly. Hear me clearly. I'm not at all denying the value of a good resume or a good marriage counselor or a great parenting book or accountability with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I think God uses all of those things, but the key is that God uses them. Ultimately, help comes from God. Period. Bottom line. Help comes from God alone. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above. If there is anything that is helpful in your life, if there's anything that changes your circumstances for the positive, James would say that ultimately was from God. In fact, there's multiple other scriptures that would say this very same thing. Psalm 16.2, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Every good thing comes from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Which implies that he's the one who gives. Job 1.21, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And so it's the Lord who gives help. Now, no doubt he uses means. Right? He uses good counselors and he uses good parenting books and he uses resumes and he uses all of those things. And all of those things can be of great help. But understand this, help comes from the Lord. This is what the psalmist is saying. He's asking the question, where does my help come from? And the resounding answer of verse 2 is simple. It comes from God. Help comes from God, period. Now, there's a couple of things about God that make him uniquely qualified to be able to be the one who helps. And in fact, in this psalm, this is what the psalmist lays out. There's two things about God that make him uniquely qualified. This actually, you'll see this pattern in other places in Scripture. In fact, Isaiah 40, I was reading this morning, the same pattern, these same two things are in Isaiah 40. And those two things are simply this, that he's the one who made the heavens and the earth, and he never sleeps or slumbers. So let's start with the first. One thing that makes God uniquely qualified is he made the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. Verse 2 says this, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Listen, I don't know where you fall on the creation evolution spectrum, but the Bible is clear on this, that God is the maker of heaven and earth. Now, there may be some debate on old earth, young earth, but what's not up for debate, if you are a Christian who takes the Bible seriously, is that God is the maker and the creator. In fact, this is a key foundational piece of many truths in the Bible, that God is the maker and he is the creator. And that's what the psalmist is teaching here. And because that's true, that has serious implications for you. Whatever you're going through, whatever difficulty you may be facing, the one who helps you is the one who made heaven and earth. That's huge. In fact, that makes God unique in his ability to help us. There's no one else who made heaven and earth. 
I've alluded several times in the last couple of months to the book of Job and the dialogue that Job and his friends have and then eventually that God has with Job where he kind of puts Job in his place. But rather than just alluding to that today, I want you to actually turn there and see it. Okay, so I want you to turn to the book of Job. It's right before Psalms, Job 38. So the background to Job is Job has all these crazy things happen to him and then his friends kind of debate for about 37 chapters why this happened. And finally in Job 38, God puts Job in his place. And I want you to listen to this because I think it ties in directly here to Psalm 121. So we're going to start in verse 1. Excuse me. And I'm not going to read everything that God says for four chapters here, but I'm going to read a a good portion here, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. By the way, at this point in the story, Job must have been terrified. Right? For God to say this, he knows that God means business. This is not going to go well for Job, just so you know. Sorry if that spoiled the ending for you, but this is not going to go well for Job. All right, verse 4. Where were you, God asked, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limit for it and set its bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Skip down to verse 18 here. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory. And that you may discern the paths to its home. You know for you were born then. That's sarcasm by the way. And the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Which I have reserved for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war. What is the way to the place where light is distributed? Or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth. When this goes on for four chapters, God asks all these questions which are clearly heavily sarcastic in nature. Where were you? Oh, surely you know. You must have been born since you know so much. And he puts Job in his place and he says, listen, you don't know any of these things. The same is true for us. Listen, we were not there when the foundations of the earth were laid. I know some of you are getting older, but none of you are that old, right? None of you are old enough to say, I was there when the foundations of the earth were laid. You did not determine the measurements of the universe. You do not tell the ocean where to stop. Not one person here has ever gone to the ocean and said, stop here, ocean, and the ocean is obeyed. But it does that for God. We do not tell the sun when to come up. We do not tell the sun where to come up. We don't know the place to the dwelling of light. We have never seen the storehouses of snow. The whole point of Job 38 through 42 is that God has done all of those things. He knows all those things. He does all those things. He holds the universe together by the power of his word. And as such, he is uniquely qualified to help. Listen, in times of trouble, you may be tempted to use other resources. You may be tempted to use your own intellect or to use your relational connections or your experiences or your own willpower. And I'm, again, I'm not denying that God can't use some of those things. But what I'm saying is if you abandon the help that comes from God, you are making a tragic mistake. Because He is uniquely qualified to help. He is willing to help if you just cry out. 
And that's the question, isn't it? Will we cry out to Him? Will we believe that this is true? Will we believe that we need help? And subsequently, will we cry out to the one who can help? That's the question. He is uniquely qualified because He made the heavens and the earth. He also is uniquely qualified in that He never slumbers and He never sleeps. Verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 121. Verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now this idea that God never slumbers or sleeps, to me, is a very underrated attribute of God. The fact is, if you have someone who's willing to help you, but they're sleeping, that doesn't do a lot of good, does it? God is unique in this way. We are all limited in our ability to operate without sleep. For most people in this room, a third of your life you will spend sleeping. For those of you who can operate on less, probably at least a fourth of your life you will spend sleeping. And without sleep, we are a complete and total mess. If you go days without sleeping, it will mess with your mind. If you go days without sleeping, there comes a point where you just collapse. When I was in seminary, I worked for UPS, uh, the third shift, 10 p.m. to about 5 a.m. And there was one Christmas break when Tanya drove back to Iowa. We were in Kentucky at the time, and so Tanya drove back to Iowa a few days early. She got done with work, and so I was going to meet her there after I worked a few more days at UPS. And so I finished up working on this particular day. Normally, I would go back to bed after I got done working, but instead, this time, I just drove straight from Iowa all the way to Kentucky, nine hours. I got there around two in the afternoon, and it was okay because it was the middle of the day. I didn't have any near accidents or anything like that. And the rest of the day, I think we watched a football game, and we hung out, and then that night, we decided to go to a movie. We went to, I still remember, it was Walk the Line about Johnny Cash. And so I went in there, and I had every intention, every intention of staying awake through this movie. I I had no desire to fall asleep, but within the first five minutes, I could not keep my head up, let alone my eyes open. I just could not do anything. I was overcome by this need to sleep. And sure enough, I slept through the entire movie. To this day, I still haven't really seen the whole movie, so I hope it was good. I, I don't know. I don't know if during this movie... I was snoring the entire time. I don't know if I was drooling all over the place. I don't know. I don't know what embarrassing things I was doing, but the thing is, I did not care, nor even if I did care, I couldn't have done anything about it because I was gone, right? I needed sleep, and my body was going to do whatever it took to get it. It did not matter if I looked like a complete moron in the movie theater. I was going to sleep because that's the way we work, isn't it? We need sleep. We are weak creatures. And in fact, uh, there's crazy stories in history of people who have slept through all kinds of crazy stuff like plane crashes and wars, sinking ships, car crashes, all other kinds of calamities because this is us. We are weak. In fact, some of you, you have trouble staying awake during my sermon. Maybe that says something about my preaching. I'm not sure, but it is hard to stay awake sometimes, right? It is difficult to keep attention at all times. But listen, God never slumbers or sleeps. Not ever. He doesn't have a need for rest. He's God. He doesn't need to slumber or sleep. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is in 1 Kings 18. Maybe you're familiar with the story. Elijah is challenging the prophets of Baal to a little contest. Uh, The priests of Baal are under the impression, of course, that they're serving a true God, Baal. uh, God with a lowercase g. And Elijah is challenging them. He's saying, if if Baal is so great, why don't you call on him to light this altar on fire? So they set up this altar, 
And he challenges the prophets of Baal, the priests of Baal. He says, why don't you call out to this Baal, this great God of yours, and he will rain down fire. And so the priests of Baal, they, they start dancing around, they start yelling out, and they start cutting themselves, and they do all these things. And of course, nothing happens because Baal's not really a god. But they do all this for all this time. And, and finally, there's a point where, after what seems like a significant portion of time, Elijah turns and he taunts the prophets of Baal. And he says to them, well, maybe Baal's just on vacation. Or maybe Baal's using the restroom. Or maybe Baal's just taking a nap. Why don't you keep crying out? The point, of course, is that a true God would never have need for any of those things. And sure enough, the minute that Elijah calls on the true God, Yahweh, he lights the altar on fire despite the fact that Elijah had doused it in water and made it almost impossible to light. God lights it on fire. And the point is simply this, that our God is not like any other God because there's only one true God. And he never slumbers or sleeps. Never. And so what that means practically for you is this. If it's 3 a.m. and you are going through an incredibly difficult time and everyone else you know is sleeping, know this, you can cry out to him because he's not sleeping. If it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon and everyone you know is busy picking up their kids from school or working, know this, he is available. He doesn't have a need for a nap. He doesn't slumber or sleep. He's not like us. And that means that we can cry out to him no matter the time. Now listen, that's not to say when you cry out to him that he'll always answer in the way that you want him to or the way that you expect him to. But what it is to say if you are a follower of Christ is that he will always help you in the way you would want him to help you if you knew what he knew. In other words, given all the facts he has, excuse me, he will always help you in the best way possible. And if you knew everything you knew, you would always agree with everything God does. Because he is inscrutable in his ways. Now, of course, we would be remiss if we didn't point out that the ultimate way he helped us was by sending Jesus. As we mentioned earlier, our real problem is not that we need to be better spouses or better employees or that we need to have better finances or whatever the case is. Our problem is that we've rebelled against God. And as much as we can cry out to God for those other things, the everyday life things, we certainly should cry out to Him and ask for salvation. Because He has provided the way of salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross, taking the punishment for sin that we deserve to pay. And if you cry out to Him, you can be rescued. And so know this, He is unique. He is unique. He's willing to help All we have to do is recognize that we need that help. Listen, the way to have a right relationship with God is not to be a better person or to be more religious or to pray more regularly. The way to be right with God is to acknowledge that you need help. And specifically, as it relates to your salvation, to turn and believe in Jesus Christ. Because through Christ, your sins can be forgiven and you can be right with God. Listen, the fact is, and I I know you know this, deep down I know you know this, you need help. You do in everyday areas of life, but also in the ultimate sense. And the good news for you is that you have one who's willing to help. One who never slumbers or sleeps. One who made the heavens and the earth. And he is willing to help you. Now, the other good piece of news is this. That his help is not a help that goes and comes. It's a help that lasts. In fact, in verses 3-8, through notice how many times the word keep appears in those verses. He keeps helping us. Verse 3. Verse 3 of Psalm 121 says this. 
you will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now my, my count, at least six times in those verses, the word keep or some variation of it appears. The point is that God's help is one that persists. He keeps helping us. He keeps protecting us. He keeps providing for us. Now why does the psalmist feel the need to keep saying this over and over and over again? I think John Calvin is on to something when he says that we have a tendency to forget that God provides for us. Calvin said this about Psalm 121. He says, even when we seem to have largely experienced what this protection of God implies, we yet instantly tremble at the noise of a leaf falling from a tree as if God has quite forgotten us. What Calvin means is this, that even though God protects and provides for us on a daily basis, the first sign of trouble, the sign of a leaf falling, we begin to wonder, where has God gone? Now think of it this way. Think of it this way. Think of all of the ways in which God provides for you on a regular basis. How many days of your life have you been able to walk around freely? Not imprisoned. You have legs to be able to walk. How many times have you been able to do that? How many times, how many days have you had food on your table? How many days of your life have you had clothes to wear? How many days of your life have you experienced relatively good health? How many days of your life have you had family and friends who are a blessing? How many days of your life have you had a roof over your head? Now listen, I know that for some of you the answer isn't every day. And I recognize that. Life is hard. But for most of you, for most of your days, if you're honest and you look back, God has provided for you in incredible ways. In fact, I would guess that most of you woke up this morning and you were able to eat something and you probably had a something over your head, and you have obviously clothes to wear, right? God has provided for you, and he does so every single day. He blesses us with gift after gift after gift, and yet, so often, at the first sign of trouble, we begin to wonder, has God forgotten us? To quote Calvin, the minute the first leaf falls from the tree, we begin to wonder, where has God gone? And the answer is, he's always been here, right? He keeps protecting, and he keeps providing And this is precisely why I think the psalmist needs to remind us that God keeps helping, that he keeps protecting, that he keeps providing. Now, I think we need to point out here that he helps both the group and the individual. In verse 4 it says that he keeps Israel. This is a reference to the people of God. And, And so that's a reminder to us that he will keep this church. He will keep these people. He will keep New Hope Fellowship. He will protect and provide for this church. But he also protects and provides for the individual. Verse 5, it says, the Lord is your keeper. That's a reference to the fact he helps us individually. As Matthew Henry puts it, the shepherd of the flock is also the shepherd of every sheep. And so what that means for us as believers is this. You can be confident he will provide for us collectively. He will provide for this church. He will keep this church. You can also be confident that he will provide for you individually. That he will keep you. He's the shepherd of the flock. He's also the shepherd of the sheep. And he protects and provides for his people. Now again, let me define here. His people are those who trusted in Christ. Those who believed in Christ for salvation. Those are his sheep. As we talked about in Psalm 23 a couple weeks ago. Now, a couple of things I want to clarify here in verses 3 through 8. 
When the psalmist says that the sun will not strike you by day, as he does in verse 4, or excuse me, verse 6, the sun shall not strike you by day, he's not at all insinuating that the sun will never hit you again. Or when he says that there will be no evil, he's not saying that you'll never encounter difficulty. In other words, the psalmist is not saying, hey, when you walk outside, you don't need to wear sunglasses anymore because you're a believer. You don't need sunscreen anymore. The sun will never affect you. That's not what he's saying. Obviously, in the context of all of Scripture, we know that's not what he's saying. We know from First Peter, for example, that suffering is a part of the life of believers. And so when he says that the sun will never strike you or that your enemies will never affect you, he's not saying you'll never get sunburned. He's not saying that you'll never have difficulty. What he is saying is that God will protect you spiritually. He's making a spiritual reference here. It's similar to what Paul does in 2 Timothy 4. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, I'm quoting here, he says, The Lord will rescue you or rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now that is a bold thing for Paul to say. Because as he says that, he's in prison awaiting his execution. And in fact, the sword will fall quickly on Paul after this. Right? And so he's saying, the Lord will protect me and bring me safely to his kingdom. And shortly thereafter, that he's killed. And so you might say, well, was Paul wrong? Well, I don't think the answer is yes. I think, in fact, what Paul was saying is that God will protect him spiritually. That's what Psalm 121 is saying, too. It's not saying that you won't have any difficulty. It's not saying that there won't be hard times. What it is saying is that God will protect the people of God collectively, and he will protect them individually. To use the language of Psalm 121, the Lord will keep your going out and your uh, coming in, which is a phrase that simply means everything you do, and he will do this from this time forth and forevermore. And that, friends, is the great news of the gospel. The fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose three days later is not just good news the first time you hear it. It's a good news that persists. It's a good news that lasts. It's a good news that stays forever. And in fact, that's the hope we have. That the one who helps us doesn't just help us momentarily, he helps us forever. If you have trusted in Christ, the benefits of trusting in Christ will last forever. You will never be separated from his love. You will always be a part of his family. He will keep you forever. He will bring you safely into his kingdom. He's not just your one-time helper. He's your now and forever helper. Listen, I know it's not easy to ask for help. I know. Sometimes I, I, I fight that in myself. I know that I should ask for help, but I just don't do it. And, and I'll say this. That, that's a shame on multiple levels. It's a shame on this level. That if you are not asking other people for help, and again, God uses other people to help us, you are depriving them of the ability to be able to help you. It is a blessing to help others. But if you are unwilling to ask God for help, that's a major problem. But here's the thing. Although in theory I think we're willing to ask God for help, in reality we often don't do it. In fact, if you evaluate your prayer life honestly, I would guess most of you would say, you know what, I don't ask him for help enough. I think that oftentimes we think, we, we think theologically we should ask God for help, but practically we just don't do it. And I think the reason for that is ultimately we kind of think we can do it on our own. Although we don't like to admit that, I think that's true. We kind of think we can do it on our own. In some ways we're like the irrational confidence of a two-year-old. We, we have four kids. We've seen them all go through this stage where they are completely irrationally confident about things at times. For example, they think they can put on their clothes by themselves or they think they can strap their car seat in by themselves or most dangerously, they think they can swim by themselves when clearly they cannot. 
And so we've had multiple of our kids do this, where they step off the pool and into the pool thinking that they're going to be able to swim, and clearly they cannot. They have this irrational confidence that they can do things that clearly they cannot do. I fear that oftentimes we're like that irrational toddler. That we think we can do all these things. Oh, marriage, I've got that on my own. Oh, this job, I can do that. Or these things, I can do this. Parenting, I've got it. Being a church member, that's easy. Whatever it is, we think we can do it. We're like the two-year-old who thinks they can swim or buckle their own seatbelt when clearly there's no way that's happening. As a parent, sometimes you see it and you're thinking to yourself, what are they thinking? How could they possibly think they could do this on their own? They know that, surely they know they can't swim. Why would they just jump in the deep end, right? But I wonder how many times are we just like that? We jump in thinking that we can do it on our own when the reality is we cannot do it on our own. We can't. We need help. The problem for us, though, is that the stakes are much higher than the toddler trying to buckle their own seatbelt. Because if you do not cry out to him for help in a salvation sense, then you have no hope. You are separated from God, and your destiny is one that is not good. It's a destiny of hell. And so if you're unwilling to cry out to him for help, if you're thinking, I can do this on my own, I'll just be a better person, or I'll be more religious, or I'll do more things, it will not work. You need to cry out to him for help and recognize that he provides it in the person of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer and you are unwilling to cry out to him for help, you are missing out on the joy of depending upon God in a more deep way and experiencing the joy of living a life that is completely and utterly dependent upon the one who can help. And so if you're here today, let's just acknowledge we need help. The most dangerous thing you can do is be unwilling to admit this. In fact, Spurgeon says this about Psalm 121. He says, None are so safe as those whom God keeps. None so much in danger as the self-secure. Friends, do not be the self-secure. Instead, recognize you need help and then lift your eyes up to the hills. That's where help comes from. It comes from God, the maker and creator of all things, the one who never slumbers or sleeps, the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that you might have hope. That is where hope comes from. My challenge for us, my challenge for me, my challenge for every person in this room is that we would be people who believe that and then live like that's true. We need help. Thankfully, we have one who's willing to help. Let's pray. God, we do want to acknowledge that we are in desperate need of your help. And we're thankful that you sent your son Jesus Christ so that we might have help. May we cry out to him today. May we cry out to him today. May we lift our voices to him. May we, in unison, say we need your help. Because the fact is, we do need your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.